Welcome to another episode of Real Estate Investing News for Accredited Investors. Check out the video webinar version of this episode on our YouTube channel or visit simplepassivecashflow.com slash investor letter and check out our sister podcast by searching for the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast on your favorite podcast player. What's up, everybody? This is the July 2021 monthly market update. You can check out past monthly updates by going to simplepassivecashflow.com slash investor letter. Let's get to it. Welcome to another episode of Real Estate Investing News for Accredited Investors. Check out the video webinar version of this episode on our YouTube channel or visit simplepassivecashflow.com slash investor letter and check out our sister podcast by searching for the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast on your favorite podcast player. freebie this month is uh, we're giving away the remote rental e-course light for anybody who goes and emails lane at simplepassivecashflow.com in the subject line and we'll get you access to that all about buy remote rentals great for non-accredited investors and great starting education for accredited investors if you haven't checked out uh, our facebook group all the youtube channel and the podcast check it out Google my name or simple pass at cash flow. I'm sure you'll find it. And those of you guys who are starting to jump on live, if you guys want any questions, please do so. Feel free to interrupt as I go along. And I, here we get going. So a few teaching points for this month. We had a past couple podcasts about Bitcoin and just crypto investing in general. And I think when you think about crypto, there's three ways of investing. The first and probably the most conservative is just the staking and just investing in something like BlockFi, where you're just getting a straight return by lending your money out or staking it on a DeFi platform, which is a little more risky too. A second way is investing in the blue chip cryptos like Ethereum or BlockFi or not BlockFi, but Bitcoin. And then of course, the one that I think a lot of people gets a lot of attention is the investing in altcoins, which are your asymmetric return type of deal where it's a high risk, high return type of environment. But I'm not really differentiating between any of those three particular strategies with varying risk levels. We, in this discussion, there was this table that came up with the guest and different levels of investment based on your net worth here. I, I think Crypto is here to stay, and I think it's going to eventually replace or become just as big as gold. Uh, right now, it's about a tenth of the gold market. I'm in like the 1% to 5% range, one or two here, this kind of scenario choice out of my net worth. I'm not in anywhere near that at this point. I'm too busy doing real estate, but where my head's at, I'm down here. But I would be concerned if you guys were up here. A lot of people in our group, probably less than five. Some of the more crazy crypto folks are around the 10% or less uh, range. And the debate here, right? You can also get cash flow and value add in one. You don't need to get two cats here. If you go into deals that are stabilized with value, add, you can do both. But it ain't going to be turnkey rentals and it's not going to be those burr properties that all the kids are doing which to me is not a very good risk adjusted return because you're just investing with a bunch of you know, lower rung contractors who at some point is going to steal your money. 
You know, I, I implore everybody that listen to simple passive cash flow. A lot of us are more accredited investors to invest more like a credit investor as a passive partner and start investing and start to look at your taxes. For a lot of you guys are making over a hundred, several hundred thousand dollars adjusted gross income. Taxes is your big thing. If you're some guy making forty, fifty, one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year or less, taxes isn't a big deal. But it really starts to come into play when you're single, making over one hundred fifty thousand, or married, filed jointly, making over three hundred thirty thousand dollars a year. All the big shots they figure out how to pay less taxes legally. Here's their kind of their tax rates. Someone said in the Facebook group that poor Elon needs to get a new accountant because he's paying three point. Two seven percent. So it looks like we got our first question here. Other ways you can defer capital gains from real estate besides ten thirty one exchanges and opportunity funds. I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of either of these opportunity funds. Are this you can Google all about it. But the thing about the opportunity fund is you're investing in crappy areas. Why the heck would you want to invest in crappy areas that the government has deemed an opportunity fund where they want to help funnel money in? because the area sucks. That's just not the way I want to invest. I want to invest in good, solid, stable area, whether there might be a problem with the management of the property or the property or the management is distressed, not any particular issue with the property, and especially not an issue with the area, which is what the opportunity zone is all about. Of course, from time to time, you can find an opportunity zone with a Starbucks in it that's an outlier of the map, but not a big fan of those. Uh, and then 1031 exchanges. Again, I don't know why anybody really does 1031 exchanges. 1031 exchanges, um, you got this timeline. You got to have 45 days to identify all your properties. If you're buying like lukewarm, crappy deals, then yeah, you can go into whatever you want. But if not, you're a distressed buyer. And when we're selling our apartments, we love when we have a 1031 buyer because we know that they're distressed and they're typically unsophisticated. Most 1031 exchange people just have a lot of money and they don't really understand how taxes work. How do you defer capital gains or how I do it? I go into a lot of syndication deals that do cost segregations. Not all of them will do it, but if you go into a dozen of them like how I do, you're going to pick up these, you're going to pick up several hundred thousand dollars of passive activity losses and you're going to be able to hold them and, and they're going to be suspended passive losses until you use them to offset ordinary income. I probably should stop and say that I'm not a CPA, blah, 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 blah. But look, I don't pay too much taxes. You can go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash tax. And I put up my tax returns there and you can check out how much taxes I've been paying these last several years. And in uh, 2019, I didn't pay anything. Drove up my adjusted gross income down to 25 grand. And part of that is by driving my, uh, creating more passive income instead of ordinary income so I can use my passive losses to offset that. If you have, the hard part is transitioning from the traditional way of investing, um, not only 401ks, mutual funds, but traditional way of real estate investing and into the more passive tax advantage way that we like to teach our folks. And so the transition is the hard part. And that's really where the family office of HANA Mastermind comes into play. That's where we source the best practices to do this. But in a nutshell, what you're trying to do is you're trying to build up enough passive activity losses so you, when you do sell your property and you can offset that, pull down your suspended passive losses and offset those gains right in that one transaction. Case in point, I did this back in 2017 when I sold off, I believe, seven of my rentals and I had a $200,000 capital gain that, which would have sucked, right? That's a capital gain and also had to pay back the depreciation capture on that. 
because I had owned those properties for several years, depreciating the properties over that time. But I had been going into syndication deals prior and I had built up several hundred thousand dollars of passive activity losses, which I used to offset it one for one. So if you look at, again, go back to that website, simplepassivecashflow.com slash tax, you can actually see where there's a little emoji that says thumbs down to 1031 exchanges exactly because of this, being able to use passive activity losses in this fashion. And the reason I don't like 1031 exchanges, you're a distressed seller. Everybody knows you're a sucker because you're doing one of these things and you're going to get abused. And a lot of times you're going to be abused on the buying end when you're exchanging the property. Everybody knows you need to buy. If not, you're going to pay the, the government both of the taxes. So you're usually going to pay 10% over market price. If you don't think you are, you're probably the son that isn't aware of this. And then sophisticated investors, they don't want to put all their eggs in one basket. And this is what's very typical when you see these people running around with large capital gains, $100,000 to a couple million dollars of capital gain. Likely, they have a huge chunk of their net worth. I'm a big advocate that you don't want to have any more than 5 or 10% of your net worth into any one deal because things happen. And it's good to be diversified. Another, you know, you want to spread your eggs all, up, all around and not be too leveraged thing right there. Thanks, Bruce. So I think they can close out that 1031 exchanging. Not a huge fan of it at all. Why do I like real estate? If you caught the news recently, the Chinese banned Bitcoin mining, all these like Bitcoin mining machines, they got bricked and they're not worth anything. Who knows? They'll head off to it'll go somewhere else, I am sure. But my rules of investing is invest in stuff where you, you have enough income to pay for all the expenses for a positive cash flow um, with leverage, right? None of this, oh, I bought a property cash in Hawaii or California and I'm cash -like. No, you're not. Well, you are technically, but your net worth isn't going up by anything because it's not a good cash flowing investment. And then we like real estate because we're able to leverage into favorable debt terms. And it's a hard real asset. Um, Gold and technically crypto is a hard asset, but it doesn't produce cash flow and can't really leverage it that well. And that's why we keep coming back to real estate. A question here or follow up comment. I thought passive activity losses can only offset passive income. Didn't realize you can use that against capital. So again, I'm not a CPA guy here. If you've held on to that property for a while, it's considered passive income. That's the distinction. And that's where you need to have that educated conversation with your CPA likely is doing things really conservatively and doesn't do real estate and might put you in the category of house flipping or burring. And this is why another reason why you shouldn't be doing this burring stuff where you're doing this activity, right? You want to be go in with the intention of being a passive investor or buying hold. At that point, now you can create that capital gain and turn it and it being a passive income. Now, some CPAs would probably argue, but it's your job as an investor to steer the ship with this stuff and justify why it is a long-term capital gain. And that's being able to use passive activity losses to offset it. If you're real, doing real estate professional status of taxes, which a lot of us in our mastermind, it's all a moot point. It all turns, it doesn't matter if it's a cap, if it's an active, ordinary income, short-term passive or short-term capital gain, long-term capital, it doesn't matter. Right now, you've created the situation where you can use the passive losses and to offset whatever becomes a free-for-all. That's a little bit more of an advanced strategy, but I think this the comment here was just talking about if I have a capital gain in a real estate property, yes, you should be able to offset it with a passive income. But hey, I'm not a CP attorney. I'm just an engineer that was able to put my day job doing this stuff, and I'm able to 
use the right experts to do my taxes for me. That's really all their job. It's just to do the forms and paperwork for you. It's, I think it's the investor's job to empower themselves with the information to be able to guide the ship on this, or at least be the architect of your financial future and your taxes. Let's get into the news here. Shopping center business reports that HSBC sells 90 other branches and is exiting the retail banking sector. Maybe not big news, but some of you guys bank here. It looks like the Citizens Bank will be picking them on the East Coast and Catholic Bank will be picking them up on the West Coast. But just another example that banks, they market themselves as big institutions, but they come and go just like anything else. This is a report from Zumper reporting that rent increases are on the rise, if you haven't noticed. I think the last couple months we've been reporting on it, but it's been consistent since about the turn of the new year, January. And some of these, they're even reporting three, four, five percent or higher just in this one report. Um, reading more into the article, two bedrooms, apartments rose 4.8% year over year with a 3% increase in one bedroom. Bay Area rents have flattened with San Francisco, Oakland, and San Jose one bedrooms are all gaining compared to April. National rents are accelerated, driven by growth in cities like New York. And I think this is the bounce back of the big urban areas, which got, actually got hugely flattened in the pandemic year because of the, you know, people wanted to move away from the highly dense areas. Milwaukee grew a lot, 8.9% year over year, but cooled off a drop 5.2% month over month. And that's just kind of to be expected when you have those big fluctuations. Think of it like the volatility of like alter altcoins pops up and then it dives down. Glendale, Arizona, one of the top growing metro area with 15.7% year over year increase and Phoenix with a 9.1% jump. Question here on Austin is like Boise. I'm not a huge fan of them. I think Austin is really overheated. It doesn't cash flow there, so I'm not interested, but I'm sure rent increases are up there too. Maybe I might be able to pick it out here. Oh yeah, Austin, number four here. Austin and Baltimore made 5.1% month-over-month gains, but Austin remains down by 0.8% year over year. There's your answer to your question, Giles. Thanks for sending. But the top five, for those of you guys catching this up in the podcast form, which gets released once a month, who are not able to check out the, uh, the PowerPoint presentation on the YouTube channel. Number one, Irving, Texas rose 5.4%. And like many DFW su- suburbs, it's up year over year as well as 9.3%. San Francisco, Madison, Wisconsin both rose 5.3% in June, but are year over year trending in different directions. Des Moines, Iowa and Reno, Nevada rose by 5.2% in June, making the second month in a row Des Moines has finished in the top 10. I'm actually trying to sell one of my properties in Des Moines, Iowa and the price that we're getting is a lot higher than what we had for offers two or three months ago. Things are, everybody knows it right now. It's not, it's no secret that things are definitely turning around. Plano, Texas, Detroit, Michigan, and Chandler, Arizona rose by 5% in June, with Chandler being a whopping 8. 18.4% year over year. What's on the downward slide? So here's the top five of the downward is Spokane, Washington. One-bedroom rents slipped by 5.2% compared to May, but are up 13.6% year-over-year. That's a little misleading, right? It went down 5.2% in just in one month. But overall, I mean, it's up year-over-year. But you as an investor need to take everything with the grain of salt. Richmond, Virginia dropped 5.1% in June, but is essentially flat year-over-year. 
Durham, North Carolina, New York, uh, Newark, New Jersey, rents tumble by 5% in May. Milwaukee uh, experienced a rent drop of 4.5% in June, despite the year-over-year gain of 5%. And Boise, Idaho has been one of the hottest markets in this pandemic because people are moving out of LA or whatever the thesis may be. It doesn't really matter. It's just Boise's on fire, but rents fell 3.9% in June. And that's just, I think, if it went up a whole boatload, that it has to resettle and settle out. But I think one thing I caution everybody with Boise, it's a very small market. It's, it's a small tertiary. One, a little impact there will make the numbers jump quite a bit. I'm not quite sold on the market. It doesn't cash flow too, so I'm not too interested in Boise. Uh, leaders for annual rent growth include Riverside, San Bernardino, Phoenix, Sacramento, and Las Vegas. This is from the same metric, but a different news source, real page. But you, we're going to go through some of these top rent increases charts and you're going to see the same leaders uh, some of the ways they measure data is a little bit different so i would think just take everything relative to ranking but the top ones are riverside center brindino 13.5 percent phoenix arizona 11.4 percent sacramento 10.4 percent las vegas 10.3 percent tampa memphis atlanta jacksonville greensboro salt lake city round out the top 10 same data or same metric here, top rent increases for May 2021. This coming from Realtor.com. Again, Riverside, San Bernardino, Ontario, California, 19.2%. Memphis at 17%. Tampa at 16.9%. Phoenix, Mesa, Scottsdale, Arizona, 16.8%. Sacramento, 15.8%. And then Richmond, Virginia, Atlanta, Las Vegas, Cincinnati, and San Diego. San Bernardino to San Diego to the uh, top 10, according to Realtor.com. Moving away from apartments, talking a little bit about off-commercial property executive reports that rising sublease rates boost office vacancy. What's happening here are, are the bigger players are taking over space from the smaller folks. Take like a JP Morgan or Experian, they're eating up the available space left over by people who just jump ship, drop their lease. But on the contrary, like Wash Street is a big black rock. One of the big players that you may or may not want to follow as a smart money. They're agreeing to sell their office portfolio off and shifting more towards the multifamily sector. And this is a $766 million office portfolio. And Wash Street says it plans to use the net proceeds from the sale to fund the expansion of its multifamily portfolio through acquisitions in the Southeast markets to reduce its leverage by repaying outstanding debt. Moving from office to Southeast apartments, and this is what we've warned everybody is through the whole pandemic, multifamily apartments was a safe haven. It, it showed a lot of strength. And this is what the smart money is doing. They're finding sanctuary. And, and I think it's a good sign if you're an apartment investor. But bad news is people are not dummies uh, or the big smart money are not. You're going to have increasing more competition. Similarly, Blackstone, another big player, they're betting $6 billion on shifting the path to suburban home. What they're doing is they're buying 17,000 homes and getting into the single-family home rental market. So they bought out Home Partners of America, a rental company that owns over 17,000 homes, according to this report done by Blueboard. This, what, so basically, here's how I read it. Big hedge fund company institutional money coming in, they're wanting a piece of the single family home rental market. 
some people will say now it's even harder for people to buy houses. And they're right. I don't think everybody should be a homeowner, at least by debt service coverage ratios. I don't think they should. But this is institution. It's hard for an institution to get into this space because you got the whole issue with property management, which is a huge pain in the butt. If you guys own turnkey rentals, you guys know what that's all about. These large companies did this back in, you know, shortly right after the recession, and they struggled a lot because they weren't able to work with some of the more hairy properties. But they're up to it again. These big decisions are made by the guys in the suit in the ivory tower. And from their perspective, it looks like a good deal. But the problem is the implementation, right? I'm sure they'll be fine. It's not like the guys with the suits are the ones doing the hard work anyway. Um, Adam releases this, this cool chart where it tracks the activity of loans, which kind of mimics what's going on with like overall transactions and real estate. The main takeaway here is this breaks down the HELOCs, the refinances and purchases loans. The HELOCs have remained about the same. The purchases are steadily increasing all the way back from 2010. But what's been really hot is this green bar here, which is representing the refinances, which really started to take off in the end of 2020. A lot of people, and this is obvious, right? And when you think about it, it's obvious because it's not obvious to the average person who doesn't listen to the podcast or this monthly market update that I do every single month. But as people are having their property values rise because of the overall everywhere is hot due to low supply, in my opinion, it's not really due to more demand, it's just because it's due to low supply and all this fake money pumped into the system. People have all this uh, home equity, but what they're doing is they're refinancing their home to get at the money. Multi-housing news reports that Fannie Mac, Freddie Mac extends the multifamily forbearance program. One last time. they're looking like it's going to be up in September 30th. This could always be extended, but I have a gut feeling that this is a final straw with this. Maybe one more. Uh, and then the Supreme Court keeps the eviction ban in place. I don't know. This is just my understanding of the whole thing. It doesn't really matter what really happened. But the whole point is that the uh, eviction moratorium is ending. And it looks like it's probably going to be the summertime. The ban was in place until July 31st, but they kept pushing it back. And now the question I, all the regular people ask on the street is, how the heck is the CDC mandating that people can't get evicted? the heck does the freaking Center for Disease Control have jurisdiction over that? We're not a political show. We just tell you the facts and let's spend our time and energy and stuff that actually matters, which, all right, how is this going to play out? People aren't going to have that protection of this long place. And one could say that there could be some foreclosures coming up as you put yourself in the shoes of somebody who went in forbearance the middle of last year as you lost your job. What you have to remember is your debt payments are still adding up. Say your mortgage is $1,000 a month. It's not like you just keep, you pay your next month $1,000. This stuff has been accumulating on you to the point where you might have $6,000, $12,000 of mortgage payments built up. I don't know what American family has that much money to plop down if they were in forbearance. You know, one could assume that there's going to be a glut of foreclosures coming through. And here's where I differ. I think this is where people use it to sell attention and get people to click on like, their Twitter feeds and their YouTube channels. Ken McElroy did this. He put all these YouTube videos that the world was ending and the world didn't end. Ken McElroy was investing in 2015 to 2019 very much. He lost out on the 
one huge bull run in that period. Now there's a lot of foreclosures that could, they're saying potentially could come and, and crash the market is what they say. I personally don't think it's going to impact things very much. I think that there are a lot of people that are going to go through foreclosure, but I just have a feeling that it's not going to rock the boat very much. But that's just my feeling. That's uh, And I don't care because this is why I don't do residential real estate, where the prices are primarily dictated by how your property performs in terms of net operating income. Uh, Arbor releases this breakdown of, well, who owns single-family homes? 70% of the single family home stock out there and of two to four units are owned by unsophisticated mom and pa investors or the individuals. Whereas the multifamily apartments, only 10% are owned by mom and pa investors. And this is why I keep telling people they need to swim upstream because you got to get away from the amateur investor doing it on their own as they work their day job on the side. And that's cool. That's how I started. And I think that's what you still have to do when your net worth is under half a million or you're not a credit investor yet. But I think the point is to try to get out of this space because here it's just all kinds of stuff going on in this world where just you have just amateurs buying properties. And especially in the last year where they see the stock market drop due to the pandemic. And now it's, again, amateur hour, people coming into the space of Blackstone or BlackRock, as you mentioned, bought 17,000 homes with $6 billion worth of asset. But still, it's a drop in the bucket. Only 10% is owned by the institutional managers or I assume the others, what that's captured by. Whereas the institutional managers still own 10%, but LPs, LLCs, or I would call these more sophisticated operators and syndications are this lighter green where I would call that 60% of that multifamily apartment is owned in that structure, where again, only 10% is owned by your amateur hour um, on a pot investor. High-end homes sales outperform. This is a graph done by Real Red. I think this is obvious, right? Like in the pandemic, unfortunately, if you are a white-collar worker, able to work from home, your life didn't really change your inconvenience because you weren't able to go to the football games, basketball games, and travel on your cool vacations, go to Disneyland. So you got some spending money. What do you do? You improve the house or you go buy a bigger house or you go buy a cool luxury vehicle. That's why I think that's why cars are expensive these days. And there's some limitation on the current parts and, and computer chips, supposedly. But I think a lot of people on the upper end, maybe call it the top 10% of the United States, you did pretty well. You got a lot of money. You got all this stimulus money and you didn't even need it. But probably more importantly, as we kind of work with clients, it's not really how much you make, it's how much you spend. It's the bigger KPI is what I see when I work with people. The fact that you're stuck at home for a year, not able to go on your vacations or blow your money and fun stuff, you got a lot of money. But this kind of makes sense. Unfortunately, with the pandemic, like the poor got poor and that's what's happening with inflation. If you're sitting on your cash, you're going to be a loser with all the inflation. The mid-price homes stayed the same, but the affordable homes went up in terms of demand here. A little sad. And then overall, this is just a show of days on market, which is an indicator of demand. I'll, I'll be very frank with everybody. When your friend tells you that they're buying a home in this market, and it's a freaking seller's market, guys. Days on market was less than 60 days back in 2013. And now it's down to 26 days on high-end properties and 20 days on more affordable housing. It's a seller's market in any sense of the way. If your friend is buying a, a house to live in now, an angel loses their wings. 
and Lane cries to sleep after another person falls victim to the narrative of buying a house so you can make the lenders and real estate agents rich out there. And you tie up your cash flow so you cannot invest it and you'll be a victim to working forever. Hope you can sense the sarcasm here. But if you want to turn the tide, join our family office, Ohana Mastermind, where you get to meet up with other accredited investors. So it's 45 people. We got about 375 people in there now. Uh, we do buy these Zoom conference calls. It is a geek squad of financial fanatics in this group where we work through um, learning syndication deals, what to look for, who to stay away from. It's a closed private group. And we work through the tax, legal. But I think the most important thing are the soft topics that we go over as a group as you start to build relationships with other pure passive accredited investors. The preceding offers general personal finance information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor's situation is unique. Always services of professional tax and legal advisors before relying on any information you take herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk.